Welcome to The Margin Line, a dental business show by Dandy. Dr. Slevich, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Really appreciate it. We are just thrilled to have you. I would love to get things started by learning a little bit more how you found your way into dentistry. Got my bachelor's in science at UMass Amherst and had a roommate in college who was interested in dentistry and followed in his footsteps. And we kind of went on this journey together, he graduated UMass, he went off to Tufts. I went to BU and Boston University and we're both originally from north of Boston. And I graduated from Boston University and did my pediatric specialty training at Columbia here in New York. And then right after residency, you went into private practice? Yes. So my partner now, Lois Jackson, brought me on. She's an alumni of Columbia as well and very involved there. And she was like the greatest mentor I could have asked for. My practices are located in the village by NYU undergrad and in Brooklyn Heights. So we are downtown Manhattan and North Brooklyn. Brooklyn Heights, for those that don't know, is kind of right over the Brooklyn Bridge in Brooklyn. Do you feel that dental school prepares you to be a great dentist? I think it prepares you to be a good starting dentist. <laughs> okay. How about as a dental business person? I think that's definitely a blind spot for dental schools. And, you know, I don't want to speak for all of them, but I think it's changing. I think with tech that really helped. I think I was kind of unfortunate in the sense that at BU, my class was the one transitioning from paper charts to digital. And I actually went through that again at Columbia. So I think now schools have kind of gotten savvy with introducing tech and practice management software and stuff like that. But at the time that I was in dental school, the schools were learning it themselves before they could teach it to us. So Dr. Adam, tell me about why your approach is different. So you have the patients and the parent in there, and that's almost a must have for you. Tell me about that because a lot of doctors, it's completely different. They don't want any parts of that. You know, I was lucky. So when I finished my pediatric training at Columbia here in New York, I joined this practice I and mean, my partner now, Lois Jackson, had been in practice since the late 80s, early 90s in a very well-established practice. And she kind of was known as the kid whisperer. So I was very fortunate to kind of learn the private practice kind of like dance from her aside from residency where it's just kind of like head down, treat as many kids as you can because... You don't know if they'll ever come back kind of thing. And so I kind of took her kind of approach where kids weren't leaving because they never wanted to leave because they loved her so much and kind of paid attention. I feel like it's really important for parents to see what is going on, the magic behind it all, and the why. Like, why am I bringing my kid to you versus someone down the street? I mean, we're in New York City. We're highly populated. There's plenty of competition around. And frankly, there's plenty of kids to go around. But what makes us special? What is going to allow for me to grow a practice where I get a following of kids who start with me when they're one or two and don't want to leave ever? And they want to stay until they're 32 and bring their own children here. And there's something special and beautiful about that. And that's why I went into medicine, at least for me. So what is your secret sauce that makes you so successful? I think it's about being honest. And I think it's about making it less about the bells and whistles and the gadgets and the TV and what you have in the waiting room and more about being very transparent with the parent and also talking directly to the kid. I make it all about the kid, whether the parent wants to chit chat with me throughout the visit or whatever, I'm talking to the kid. They are having autonomy for themselves and they are learning how to be a patient so that they aren't the parent sitting in the corner with white knuckles because they had a bad experience when they were a child. So you're setting parameters then for that child. You're setting guardrails almost. 
Absolutely. And I want them to know me. I want them to feel that I'm uncle Adam or a big brother versus this like scary dentist figure. And it was interesting. I had a patient ask me yesterday, he was 17. He said, what are kids more scared of the shot or the dentist? And nobody had ever asked me that question. And I was kind of like, I didn't know how to answer because I think there is this kind of mystique behind the dentist being a torture. When I started working, I was like, I don't want to wear a shirt and tie. I don't want to wear a lab coat. I want to be dressed down. And before COVID, I wasn't wearing scrubs. I would wear jeans and a polo and high top sneakers. And maybe I was trying to tap into a little of my inner child, but I just wanted to be approachable. And I wanted to feel as if you were going to a family member. And I've kind of had this mantra of like, it doesn't have to suck. <laughs> you know, uh, your big thing in 20 years when you're done and you're hanging it up is going to be, it didn't have to suck. It didn't suck. It was great. <laughs> Barry, I mean, you must see so many adults, right? Like you can say, I treat children and like that takes a special amount of patience, but you see adults who've had years being scared of the dentist and they're still coming to see you. So anxiety translates throughout young adolescence and into adulthood. And I now have patients coming back who maybe moved away after college saying, will you see me because I really need someone with a gentle hand and has patience for how anxious I am. I'm lucky because I trained at BU for dental school and they train you as a really good GP a really good general dentist, and that is your foundation. So it's not about, oh, well, I want to specialize in OS. Oh, I want to, you know, be perio or be pedo for that matter. It's you need the foundation to be a good GP so that you can know what all the issues could be when you're interacting with all those other colleagues of yours that are specialists if you decide not to specialize. So I am very comfortable seeing patients that are a little bit older when it's in my wheelhouse. What is your wheelhouse? What do you love to do? What doesn't suck? <laughs> <laughs> kind of two things. So one, like I have a passion for the artistry of dentistry. So I love the cosmetic aspects that I get to do. So unfortunately, one of the aspects of being a pediatric dentist, you see a lot of trauma, dental trauma. And so doing, you know, bondings on anterior teeth to me is like my favorite thing to do because one, you get to manage something that is traumatic for both the kid and the parents. And then you also get to kind of the immediate gratification of making that smile again, making that kid happy that they're not walking around with half a tooth missing. So I love that piece of dentistry. And I think if I wasn't a pediatric dentist, I'd probably want to do more prosto or something like that. But I always found that I had this unique ability to be really patient with kids. And there could be 50 kids screaming and I don't even hear anything. It's kind of like almost like I go into my happy place of just, I got this. And seeing a kid who had been traumatized maybe somewhere else or is just scared to begin with and converting them or earning their trust to allow them to be part of your team or your inner circle or pro Dr. Adam is like the greatest gift to actually touch someone's life and help them and also allow them to be a really good patient for the rest of their life is such a gift. You have a lot of depth. What do you owe that depth to? Ooh, it's a really good question. I've had a lot of really good mentors. I'm not shy. So I asked a lot of questions about being a dentist and interacting with patients. Personally, I think one thing that sometimes is lost is going in and as you say, depth, but like actually looking within yourself, you know, whether it's yoga or meditation, things of that nature, 
that I've actually used in practice to help patients through the process. So the breath is such a simple thing that we don't think about, right? That we do thousands of times a day. What a wonder it does for a patient's anxiety and a parent's anxiety. It's funny, I'll be doing treatment on a kid and I always have like my sports peripheral vision. I was a basketball player, but you know, that peripheral vision where you always know where that other player is or the pass is coming from. And I'll always have that on the parent sitting in the corner and I'll say, mom, don't forget to breathe. <laughs> and just hear this like exhale and like there's the level of just you got this this isn't our first rodeo i mean even when patients are on the nitrous i will say i'm going to put my hands on your shoulders and just gently push their shoulders down towards the chair because we always sit like this like so scared open your heart and then let all the air in it works wonders for patient anxiety going a little sideways for a second do you do yoga meditation at home on your own? I was regularly practicing yoga and meditation and then COVID, I lost my studio. And it's interesting, there's a lot of things that translated virtually throughout COVID, whether it's the Pelotons or, you know, SoulCycle or trainers virtually, but yoga is one of those things, man, where you have to be in the studio for it to really be profoundly impactful. There's something about energies and people's energies and being around that. And I've really tried to kind of incorporate that in my practice. I mean, we have all the tricks of using nitrous and positive reinforcement, but just positive energy and breathing and using those skills that we talk about using in day-to-day -day life to manage our own anxieties. I've really tried to incorporate as like a whole body approach to my practice. So you talk about positive energy, which I just find fascinating. So do you feel that permeate to your team as well? Because they're a huge part of all your success, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I say that I'm only as good as my dental assistant. So for pediatric dentistry specifically, I think you really need your assistance to be your right hand. So imagine you're treating a patient. My eyes are on a four-year-old. They're on nitrous. I'm watching their chest rise and fall constantly. I'm working on their tooth. I have an eye on the parent. I have an eye on the behavior and I'm trying to fix the tooth and I don't need to worry about my assistant knowing what my next six steps are. So I've had parents say, watching you work with your assistants is like watching a symphony. We don't even speak during the procedures. They just know. They just know, they read you. My assistants would say too, that they really appreciate what we do for kids and allowing them to have such great experiences. And I'm lucky that my partner has been in practice for a really long time. We have assistants who've been with us for 25 years. Well, that speaks so highly of you for all that retention, both you and your partner. That's amazing. Now your business model, just fascinating. What's your square footage of your Manhattan office? 800 square feet. <laughs> 800 square feet. Yeah. Whoa. And how many offices? There's three ops, a little waiting room. That's efficiency. That is efficiency, man. Man, you have more space if we could get rid of the paper charts, but that's a discussion maybe on the tech side. Wow, that is just remarkable. Three ops, 800 square feet. You should write a book on efficiency, my man. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. Wow, props. Um, so Don't tell me how big your office is, because then I'll be jealous. <laughs> well, I live out in the country, so <laughs> it's a different story. So let me ask you this. You have another office, so you're running two practices, the Brooklyn office. How big is that? Much bigger. There's six operatories. It's probably like maybe 2,000 square feet. Still, that's very efficient use of space. 
how do you combine fee for service efficiency you have this great team behind you how do you get that you have a mushroom cloud going how do you do all that that's so impressive one of the mantras that i've always had is nobody's time is more important it's just as important as my time so i never want anybody to wait to see me so i almost feel like when COVID happened and we kind of had to nix waiting rooms or people waiting in their cars i was already practicing that way where i was one family in and one family out now you know that things happen you get in the weeds and you fall behind but i really try to schedule my appointments with enough time one to mitigate the fact that i don't want people to wait and also to give enough face time for the parents so i am basically schmoozing with the parents throughout the entire appointment i actually don't even have a hygienist so i'm doing all my own hygiene do you work like 19 hours a day? I mean, my goodness gracious, you're incredible. I think it's a blessing and a curse, right? So I think early on in my career, it was a really good way for me to build a following. Parents see you working, they see your interactions with their kids, you're interacting with the parents. It's like a party and in a good way. And now I'm getting to the point where I wouldn't mind a little bit more help or I'm not opposed to having a hygienist come in once in a while and it's hard to find staff. So it almost was kind of a blessing and a curse at the same time because it, it does take a lot of energy out of me. Now, I'm tired at the end of the day and I kind of just, I go. So it's like five, six straight hours and you know, I'm done, but it takes me to wind down. I mean, you feel like you're on stage all day, right? And especially with peds, they're faster appointments. So you're seeing a patient for much longer procedures. If you're doing crown lengthening and you know three crowns, you might have a patient on the chair for an hour and a half. So I have my times where I'm doing quadrant dentistry. I do plenty of that, but I'm not jumping in and out of the room. I think it's really important that you're staying engaged with the patient and the parent. And it's interesting, like, I was thinking about this the other day, like if you think about pediatric dentistry, if you have a magical hygienist, that's wonderful. But if you're earning trust, that hygienist needs to earn the trust and then you also have to earn the trust. So it's almost like counterintuitive in a way because one workflow wise, yes, you wanna see as many patients as possible and that goes to your bottom line. However, it takes a lot of work to engage two, three, four year olds for their first visit with a hygienist. And then they're coming to see you so there's a lot of pitfalls there that can await you if you're not careful because that little trust nest is like really, really delicate early on and should not be trifled with, in my opinion. Well, it seems like that your practice is based on trust. One thing that we are proud of is that we practice individualized care. So we don't say, well, everybody gets fluoride or everybody gets sealants. We do everything on a need basis. So I don't care what the insurance companies are reimbursing me for. I am not practicing and treatment planning based off of that. I'm basing it off of what the needs are of the child. As it should be, right, yes. It should be that way. I mean, we can have like a five hour conversation, you know, over many days about insurance, but that is one of the beautiful things about fee-for-service. Hey, Dr. Adam, you're very passionate about what you do. Where did that passion emanate from? You know, it's funny, I always wanted to help people at an early age. Like I never saw myself behind a desk or working in finance. I always gravitated towards that intrinsic feeling of like having self-worth for whatever career path that I chose. And early on, I wanted to be a pediatrician. And then I went to UMass Amherst undergrad and I took a course on managed care. And I was like, wait a minute, 
This is not the pediatrician with the leather briefcase going to the house to house in the 50s. I didn't know enough. You didn't know what you didn't know. Exactly. So, you know, as I started to kind of go through the process, I had a roommate in college who was doing the dental school track and I kind of said, huh, I like my dentist. You know, that that's fine. Uh, I can work for myself. I can still help people. I can still work with kids. This seems pretty cool. And it's less school than med school. <laughs> right. As it turns out, I ended up specializing in peds about the same amount of time anyway. So it kind of worked out. I think I'm a big believer in doing something that you're passionate about is much more fulfilling than however much money you're going to make. You know, the old saying, if you find your passion, you never work a day in your life. It sounds like it holds true for you. Is that correct, Dr. Adam? Absolutely. Yeah. What advice would you have for a young practitioner about, okay, I'm going to open in, you know, Philly or New York or Chicago or LA. How do they get known? How do they get their feet wet? I think what it really comes down to is utilizing your group organizations that are around you, whether it's your alumni groups from where you went to dental school or specialty uh, study clubs that are local. I was every night going out and just meeting new dentists and just learning as much as I could from those older than me, those who've been kind of practicing in the city already and study clubs and just being a sponge, you know, taking it all in because even if you get out of dental school, you only have like the bare bone kit, right? I remember being in dental school and knowing that in New York, they require you to do a one-year GPR. In Boston, they do not. And I said, oh, like in Boston, you can just go out and start working. Like how much better is that than New York? And as I've gone through my years, I realize there's a reason for that. There's a lot to know. And I think knowing your lane and knowing where not to overextend and being honest with yourself translates towards patience. And I think that is how you grow if you're starting out on your own. You know, the other option is that you join a practice as I did and you try to make a name for yourself that way with somebody who's created an established kind of mission statement that you believe in. You know, I do remember Dr. Jackson telling me that she started this practice in downtown Manhattan. We're right by NYU in the village. And she was finding that her mode of operation or being the kid whisperer, so to speak, she was getting an influx of patients from Brooklyn and they were coming from Brooklyn to the village to see her because word was spreading that there was this great pediatric dentist. And at some point she said, you know what? I think I need to be closer to that cohort group. And so that is when she kind of decided to create the second practice in Brooklyn Heights. But there is always going to be competition, no matter what. <laughs> You're a fee-for-service dentist, which is very admirable. I wish I was. How do you do it, man? How, so impressive. What it comes down to is obviously your fees need to be to the point where you're not seeing the volume potentially that maybe an insurance-based practice needs to see. So our overheads are all going to be the same, right? But one, your fee structure has to be of such where you're justifying the fact that if I'm seeing, say, 15 or 20 patients in a day and somebody else is seeing, you know, 60. So there's that piece of it. You know, I think the other aspect is we're able to kind of keep things tight. As you know, if you have an insurance practice, you need one, maybe two, depending, three people on the phones with the insurance companies getting reimbursements and, and all the work that goes into doing that. And so you can at least keep your staff tighter. And maybe that's one of the advantages of having like a smaller office is that I don't have any more room for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but you're lean and mean, as they would say, in essence. We try to be. Yeah. Again, you're efficient, you're high trust, high touch, high tech practice. How do you spread your time, doctor? 
I'm probably about 60, 40. So I'm 60% of my time in Brooklyn and 40% of my time in the village. And I've found over the years that wherever I was more, I've kind of built a bigger following. So I think another aspect of what I do is that I am always available. So I give my patients my cell phone. I tell them, you call me 24 seven, God forbid there's an emergency. Do not go to the emergency room. You call me first. There's something about being a dentist and being a dentist for kids and being a fee-for-service practice. It's almost like I look at it as like a boutique concierge type approach where you are getting what it should be. You're getting the doctor's touch from not just in the office, but after you leave. So I'm a resource, use me. I have parents calling me, texting me, just random questions. You know, they're always like, oh, I'm so sorry to bother you. I say you being unsure of something or going on Dr. Google to find out, you know, a question that you have, I feel better if you come to me because I know what I'm talking about. So at least I can provide less anxiety when it comes to teeth. Humble wisdom. You've got it all, Adam. That's so impressive. You talked about the pandemic and prompted a thought here. And that thought is, what have you seen pre-pandemic, the pre-pandemic child versus the post-pandemic child? What differences? Oh, tons. When the pandemic was happening and we were all closed, my biggest fear, other than keeping the lights on, was how would kids handle me with like an N95 mask, which I never wore before. I mean, we always did a universal precautions with AIDS that changed our whole industry, but nobody ever paid attention to it, right? Like dentists, we were always doing it. Now people were aware, right? Now people were paying attention. But what I found was that the kids weren't scared. In fact, there was a shift in social psychology where they adapted because kids are dynamic and malleable and brilliant. And when we don't worry so much, because kids don't worry as much as the grownups do, you realize that they figure it out and it wasn't so scary. So that's kind of like a positive out of it. You know, they're all getting vaccines. There's talk of COVID, like just the understanding of health in general. That was a positive. But I think a negative was seeing a lot of teenagers and young adults and maybe some you know preteens really struggle with anxiety being kind of home and on not interacting as much with like human beings and just being glued to the devices and really not knowing how to interact with adults or kids their own age in a way that we grew up doing. I think there was a level of that. I saw a sharp kind of spike in just generalized anxiety for my patients, you know, a lot of them being medicated more so than I recalled in the past prior to COVID. Okay. More decay as well? I did see more decay. Adam, what do you like to do outside of dentistry? Being from Boston, I am a huge Boston sports fan. So okay. Celtics, Red Sox, Patriots, Bruins, like those are near and dear to my heart. When I moved to New York, my grandfather told me he'd disown me if I became a Yankees fan. <laughs> but Papa, don't worry. I love it. Can you let somebody else win a championship here or there, by the way? So I am in the enemy's den. You're in enemy territory. I love it. Hey, what would be the one thing that you would say to a graduate right now from a business standpoint? Hey, young doc, you really need to do this. What would that be? I've thought a lot about this because it's definitely a blind spot for me and something that I needed to really work on and continue to need to work on. It's not natural for me to be a businessman. And I actually 
used to think like we should do a combined MBA doctorate program in dental school. But if you really think about it, the intensity of dental school is so high and you're not thinking about running a business at that point in time. You don't have the knowledge base yet. You don't understand the questions to ask. And so I think I do have some friends and colleagues who have done MBAs later, and I think that would be super beneficial. But I think just surrounding yourself with those that have ran successful practices and asking a lot of questions, but also finding a really good lawyer and an accountant who can guide you into what the questions are, just even understanding the terminologies of business. There's a level of not being afraid to just say, hey, I don't know what we are or what they mean or what a 1099 is or what tax form is what, or there's a level of being okay to not know and just surrounding yourself with people who do know and who can hold your hand a little bit and make it not feel so scary. Let's say you had a bucket of cash, you hit the Powerball and you want a bajillion dollars. And now you said, I'm Dr. Adam. I'm a nice guy. I'm going to give a hundred million bucks back to dentistry. Where's that going? So if I were to like expand my practice, I think one thing that I have kind of thought about is if you use the model of say Emerald, right? So you go to Emerald, Emerald is one of the greatest chefs of our lifetime. You go to Emerald's restaurant in Louisiana, Emerald may or may not be in the kitchen. You expect to get Emerald quality when you go to Emerald's restaurant or any of his restaurants. And I think taking that money and recreating the magic that you have in your own office. So whether that's things that you like, making it feel exactly how it would be in New York City or San Francisco or Tokyo or wherever it is and being it aligned with what your mission statement is. And it's gonna be unique for everybody, right? So I do think tech is also really important. I think people are very tech savvy. The young parent is definitely on their game with that. But having the tech enhance your practice, not just sit and collect dust in the corner. Oh yeah, yeah. dentists are famous for that. Yeah, you're right. Oh, so we love our gadgets. Dr. Adam, it sounds like uh, there's gonna be a billboard in every major city, the Dr. Adam experience coming to you soon, right? I love it. <laughs> I like that. I like to see that from you, Barry. <laughs> there you go. Hey, you have a special project. Could you share that with our listeners today, please? I was noticing, especially in New York, is all these parents coming in with Botox, having had literally gone down the street to their dermatologist and you know, having had it done and just having casual conversations about it. I knew nothing about a Botox or fillers or you know, med spas personally. And, you know, just as I do, you know, casually talking with parents and a kind of light bulb went off in my head. I said, well, I give a lot of injections every day. I should be doing some Botox. It kind of started the wheels turning of my creative artistry type mind that I kind of alluded to with the cosmetic piece of my practice. And I think that's really interesting. So, you know, I took a course and you know, I've been doing some research on it and asking lots of questions. And I have a parent in my practice who's a dermatologist who's been very kind to take me under her wing a little bit. And I know there's plenty of resources out there, but my idea was basically to utilize it in two facets. One is potentially to offer it as a treatment modality for the parents that come to the practice in some aspect that they might be looking for, but really focusing on TMJ and TMD and facial pain. And I do see with COVID and the practice, a lot of people have anxiety and that's kind of translating towards their dentition. Thinking about injecting the masters and alleviating some of the sequelae from anxiety and bruxism and, and TMJ and TMD, so to speak. But I, 
aptly named it Baby Teeth and Botox. B&B. I love it. A whole new industry. That is awesome. Well, the next time I come to, up to the city, you're going to take care of these guys over here, all right? Yeah, exactly. I love it. I can't see them from the webcam. so I think <laughs> You're very kind, Dr. Adam. If you had a philosophy or idea that kind of shapes your practice, what do you think that would be in one word? Enthusiasm. If you could be different tomorrow in your practice, anything different, what would it be? Magic wand. I think actually work less. Okay. I think I'm more effective. Less is more. Less is more and remember to like take care of myself more. Not pamper myself, but self-care and really leaning into that more. I never say no. I will always go beyond my own capacity. So knowing my limits personally and physically. Thank you so very, very much, Dr. Adam Silovich, for being our guest on The Margin Line this afternoon. We sure do appreciate you, and we look forward to seeing you down the road. Thanks for having me, Barry, and it was a pleasure. And if people want to get in touch with me, they can check out our website, pdnyc.com. I'm also on Instagram, at Dr. Adam Silly. Little known fact about me, my last name is Silovich. I had a lot of nicknames growing up. One of them is Silly, so Dr. Adam Silly on Instagram. And you can always email me, contact at pdnyc.com, or you can even have my cell phone, 978-886-1892. I still keep my Boston area code. Loyal to the end. That is so awesome. Be well. You too. 